morning, everyone. Happy Pentecost. <laughs> a couple of woos, a couple of, oh, no, not that again. <laughs> I think, um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I remember, um, oh, yeah, it's that day. And my heart either sort of lifts and, uh, or my heart sinks. <laughs> and I, my, my feeling is that for some of us, we think, oh, goodness, Pentecost. Oh, no. We're going to have to do some strange physical activation prayer exercise during worship. Oh, no. <laughs> Oh no, I'm going to have to sort of uh, shake around a little bit. Or, oh, we're not going to have to get happy clappy, are we? I would like to suggest that there is no such thing as a follower of Jesus who isn't happy clappy. What's the opposite of happy clappy? Kind of sad and grumbly. Arms crossed and foot stompingy. You see, happy clappy we use as a kind of derogative term, but actually if we read any of the Psalms, it says clap your hands, lift your voices, shout for joy, bow down in worship. And we should remember, of course, when we are bowed down, that is the one physical posture where our head is lower than our heart. And hallelujah is Hebrew, it's a Hebrew imperative saying you shall bow down and worship Yah, God. And so for those of us wondering, what are these physical things that we're doing in worship? Can't we just sing a couple of old hymns? Well, it is absolutely biblical. Hands in the air, clapping, shouting, praying, rejoicing, bowing, screeching. I don't see mooing, but um, I, think that's, I think that's legit, frankly. <laughs> Clucking, barking, get a bit Toronto in here. Um, so... Every day is Pentecost. Happy Pentecost, sure, but it's also Christmas and Easter today. We know that, right? And actually, each one of us really every day shouldn't leave the house unless we've had our daily personal Pentecost. It's just the infilling of Jesus. I'm no good to anyone unless I've had a daily personal Pentecost. Some of us like to replace Pentecost with coffee. Um, no comment. We celebrate the spirit poured out or the coffee poured out. Um, but... Um, the, the Spirit pouring out at Pentecost on those early followers of Jesus was a sign of many things. But I think it's apt that as we think about the Jubilee, and I was chatting to the Clares just now, about you know, street parties. And actually 125 people coming together on a street who wouldn't ordinarily be there celebrating the same thing across diversity of culture, opinion, worldviews, politics, religion, and all the rest of it, saying we're coming together to share... <clears throat> in something that we hold dear to us. And if so, for the Platinum Jubilee, or as my sister called it, the Platy-Jubes, but um, <laughs> did you ever come across people calling coronavirus, what do they call it, um, the Panny D? <laughs> it's like something we do, anyway. Um, but if it's something that we do about the Platinum Jubilee, how much more at Pentecost? This is not 70 years, three score years and 10. This is a cosmic infinite celebration every day. Easter every day, forgiveness every day, resurrection power every day, Christmas, God with us, Emmanuel every day, entering to our mess every day, Lord God. So absolutely today is Pentecost and yet tomorrow is Pentecost and Christmas and Easter. Amen? And I love the worship songs you guys are singing. It's all about breaking today, isn't it? We recognize that. 
If it ain't God, if it ain't broken, God, break it. Can we just put our hands in front of us? And I just want to pray for us as we start. Lord Jesus, you have full permission in your mercy. Show no mercy, God. If it ain't broken, break it in us. In Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, take us from head to heart and back to head and back to heart. We just break false dichotomies that say either we're thinkers or we're feelers. We are both God. And we thank you for our bodies. We thank you that they tingle or that they, um, they give us signs of what you're doing. That you would, even now as I'm praying, that you would warm up some cold hearts, some cold bodies, some minds that have been caught seemingly in a thunderstorm or under a cloud. And that you would redefine happy clappy God just to be a biblical joy-filled Christian. I declare along with the writer of Proverbs this morning that the prospect of the righteous is joy. And that Jesus, you who for the joy set before you endured so much, dot, 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 so that we would not grow weary and lose heart. And so we thank you that you are releasing a spirit of joy, of wisdom, of revelation, the Easter spirit of resurrection and forgiveness, the Christmas spirit of entering to our mess and being with us as we go. And we honor you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit today. We honor you. We are so thankful. We declare that you are here. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look today at Ezekiel 47, at the river of God flowing from the temple into the world, okay? It is a very apt passage for Pentecost, and it's really an apt passage for, as I said, every day of the Christian life. Um, and I want to start with this, um, with this statement. We are not in the world for God. We are in God for the world, okay? If we think that we are in the world for God, we are basically his hirelings doing ministry and leading people to faith in order to notch ticks and approval from our divine headmaster. And we will work for his acceptance. We are in the world for you, God. And, you know, then we are his hands and feet, of course, and we are bringers of light and love, and we are evangelists and apostles. But if we see ourselves primarily as in the world for God, then we miss the fact that primarily, whatever we do, whether we have a nap or raise the dead, we are in God for the world. And so that we want to become great, not in the world, but great for the world. But we are in God, first and foremost. Our life is hidden now with Christ in God. And that has to be our primary identity, and we're going to look a little bit about that today. And if we are in God, we are the temple of God. And if we are the temple of God, He is our King. And if He is our King, then wherever we walk, we bring His kingdom. The kingdom is the King's domain, where the power and the dominion of God is. And so what does it look like for God's kingdom to come? Because it's the thing that Jesus spent most of his life talking about and living out. The kingdom of God, you see, it is more real than physical things. 
Gently pinch the person next to you. And I'm sorry for those who bruise like a peach. You're going to take a little souvenir from church today. You can feel that. If you can't feel that, go quickly to hospital now. But the kingdom of God is more real than mere physical things. The kingdom of God is not some alternative reality that we have been kind of brainwashed by church into thinking about. The kingdom of God is what happens in us and through us as we lean into the power and love of God. Amen? The kingdom of God is the inbreaking of God's shalom peace into the wounds of this world. The kingdom of God is, it redeems what once caused pain into something that now brings joy. Those chains that were broken, that, 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 that core wound in your life that held you bound for years and decades. But because the kingdom of God has come upon you, either immediately or gradually, that which once brought pain has now been redeemed into that which now brings joy. And your greatest earthly pain can become your life message. And so whatever hand Satan deals you, God says, I can use that. I can work with that. It's the victory that he's able to bring forth whatever hand he has dealt. And it's the river that flows from the death-creating structures of this world and brings life to the dry places. The theologian James K.A. Smith, if you haven't heard of him, he's brilliant. He wrote an amazing book called You Are What You Love. And it really looks theologically deeply from a charismatic point of view into what are our deepest desires. Because how many of us know that your deepest desires are not necessarily the strongest desire you are feeling right then and there? Right? So it might be, um, golly, I can't think. When I'm driving and a taxi in Cape Town cuts me up, my strongest desire in that moment is to let out a little bit of... uh, some expletives, shall we say, and to use hand gestures that are, shall we say, (laughs) sub-kingdom. My deepest desire is to actually love that person and see him or her flourish and come to Jesus. So you can see in any one moment, your strongest desires are not necessarily your deepest desires. And we have to interrogate what are the desires we're feeling in the moment and generally. James K.A. Smith says that we, we grow in our awareness of God and as we do, he begins to, quote, align our loves and longings with his and that we find ourselves beginning to want what God wants, to desire what God desires and to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all. I hope that if we are following Jesus today, if we are born again, if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we can say, genuinely, my deepest desire is that what God desires, I desire. And just because in one moment of weakness or sin or whatever it might be, our strongest desire takes over our deepest desire, we need to keep coming back. That's called a relapse. We are all in rehab daily. His mercies are new day by day. And even though we might feel like we're wasting away outwardly, inwardly we are being renewed. And that's what the gangsters and addicts in Manenberg teach me. If I think that because I'm not coming off street heroin or out of a gang, I don't need his new mercies. I don't need the rehabilitation of the spirit and that I don't need, frankly, this optional extra called poverty of spirit that enables me to inherit the kingdom, then woe to me. I am grossly out of line. 
And so, so through this lens of the kingdom of God, not being an alternative thing, but being the thing, the infinite cosmic vision of God for humanity, what we begin to see is that actually it's not so much about what we achieve on this earth for the world, but rather who with God in us and us in God, who we are becoming. So let me say this more succinctly. Who you become is more important than what you achieve. The idea that we would seek to justify our life and our existence through impressive human endeavors is the exact antithesis of the kingdom of God. Who you are and who you are becoming is much more important to God than anything that you've achieved. And so when we realize this, 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 this different way, this new way of seeing, we begin to realize that, okay, I'm not just praying for people to experience salvation. I'm hoping that they'll experience salvation so that they can pray. Because our deepest longing is actually connection with God. And we are wired to commune with the, with the Trinity and that we are in God for the world. So we're not just praying, God, save lots of souls. We're saying, save lots of souls so that they can pray and so that they can enjoy and taste what we have seen because you are good. And then if we have this same lens that it's not about what we do or achieve, but about who we are, then repentance shifts from, sorry, Lord, for doing that and being sorry for the things that we have done to being sorry that we're the sort of person who would do such things. Do we get that slight nuance? It's not therefore I go at the end of my day and go, I did that, I did that, I did that, I did that, I'm so sorry. It's saying, oh Lord, I long to desire what you desire and I'm so sorry that today I look at these moments where actually I didn't. And some of my strongest desires in the moment overwhelmed my deepest desire, which is to know you and be found in you and you in me. So we are not in the world for God. We are in God for the world. And all around us today, we see this aggressive call-out culture. Do you know what I mean by call-out culture? Some of us, some vague nods. Okay, call-out culture is when you, maybe you use a word that you can't say that anymore. Or you, uh, you, you, you share something, well actually, no, that's, that's a colonial mindset and you need to be careful about that. Or uh, things, it's going on in school the whole time. You know, uh, we see it with, uh, 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 should we say, gender transitioning and all the rest of it. And maybe we say, well actually, I don't believe that. Oh no, no, you can't say that. And it's, it's this spirit of woke. And there's nothing wrong with justice. Absolutely not. There's absolutely nothing wrong with decolonizing a colonial hangover. Goodness knows we know much about that in uh, South Africa where the law of apartheid was dismantled in 1994 and the spirit of apartheid, which means separateness, continues to live on unabated. But my point is this. The kingdom is not primarily a call-out culture. The kingdom is a call-in culture where Jesus says to his disciples, whether unschooled ordinary men in fishing boats, tax collectors or zealots, i.e. right-wing and left-wing, and the uneducated, so pretty much everyone, he says, come, follow me. Public shaming is not Jesus' style. He calls us in. And so we have decided, and many of you know our story, Sarah and me, and now our little daughter, Simi, who you'll see in a little bit, um, we have decided that we will move to the margins of a city, Cape Town, which is the most 
racially divided city in South Africa, the most economically unequal country on earth. And so we find ourselves in the deep end of a lot of these discussions. And unless we have a vision of the king, we will miss the kingdom. The secular left is no closer to the kingdom than the religious right, I believe. The option that Jesus gives us is to creatively cultivate a third way. And this, I believe, is the key to the river of God. So if you have a Bible, please open it at Ezekiel 47. So Ezekiel is in an open vision. Ezekiel was a prophet. This was written and experienced roughly 600 years before Jesus came to earth. And he wrote it down. If ever there's an argument for journaling what God's saying to you, like pretty much, well, the the whole Bible is it really, isn't it? (laughs) Ezekiel 47, we pick up this open vision six chapters in. The first six chapters are Ezekiel 40 to 46. I'll save you time. It's pretty dull going to be honest, unless you're really into, I know I said the Bible was pretty dull, but it's, um, no, it's, um, it warms up to this chapter where uh, the fir- Ezekiel 40 to 46 is basically a lot of very uh, technical and detailed uh, uh, prescriptions for how worship in the temple should look. So if you're an architect, you'll probably love that. But the river from the temple is the point, is the climax of this open vision, Okay. And we're not going to read the entire chapter, but we um, are going to pick up in and out of this story. So Ezekiel is led to the temple. And the first thing he notices is that there is water flowing out of the temple. Okay? And he doesn't panic and think, goodness, we need to call a plumber. There's something wrong with this. There's obviously prophetic significance in this. Because the water flowing from the temple of God represents the blessing of God into the world. Right? Easy peasy. Christianity 101. The kingdom of God is bringing renewal to the world from the people of God who meet and congregate and worship and pray and receive revelation and authority delegated by Jesus to take his hope into the world. And so where is this water flowing from? We need to remind ourselves. Is it flowing from the king's palace? Is it dripping with prestige and wealth? No. Is it flowing from a government office, displaying power and influence? No. Is it flowing from the marketplace with businesses and connections and networks? No. And so we need to realize that the blessing of God flows from God's house where the people of God meet and worship in a posture of worship and adoration. And so the refreshment that the world so badly needs comes from the house of God. And yet, let me ask us, how many of us are still going after prestige and wealth and power and influence and networks? Because that might serve you, but it's actually not going to serve the world. Ephesians 3.10 says it's God's intent that now through the church, his manifold wisdom should be made known. But here's the problem. So often the church represents a badly taken photograph. What do I mean by that? Well, a badly taken photograph is often overexposed. Seen that, haven't we, recently with all le- lots of leaders and other structures and denominations being exposed. 
A bad photo is often underdeveloped. Theologically, if we're underdeveloped, we will fall for the culture wars. We will fall for the celebrity content online. We will fall for the conspiracy theories. Hello? Seeing that happening, why is it that evangelicals are statistically more likely to fall for anti-scientific conspiracy? Because we are underdeveloped theologically. And thirdly, a bad photograph is often fuzzy around the edges. The margins of society where, by the way, there's no such thing as the voiceless, only the deliberately silenced and preferably unheard. And so you see, this is the issue. The church is the hope of the world. And through God's wisdom, he wants through the church to be revealed. Yet, we often are overdeveloped, underdeveloped, overexposed, and a little blurry about our edges. And so the river of God's story from Ezekiel is absolute gold for us to realign our vision with the kingdom. And what are we told? What would you expect about water flowing from the temple out further? You would expect it to get shallower. It would be deep and it would be a torrent and it would turn into a trickle the further it is away from the temple of God. And yet God does not work always by the physical laws of nature. It actually gets deeper, this river, the further Ezekiel is from the temple. Let's start reading from verse 3. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a, a river that no one could cross. And he asked me, son of man, do you see this? Where is Ezekiel led? Alongside the river? Nope. Right in <coughs> through the middle of the riverbank. And some of us need to hear this. We don't get to critique and analyze those trying their best to walk deeper with God in the river from the comfort and safety of the riverbank. That is what we are seeing in culture all the time. And that is actually part of the call out culture spirit. I will stand in anonymity behind the safety of my device or whatever it might be. And I'll call out others doing things and calling them into something that I'm actually unwilling to do myself. I analyze from the sides, and yet the vision of God for the church in the world is that we would get gloriously and obediently out of our depth as we follow the, the guide of God. And so what happens is he follows his guide, he is taken deeper and deeper, and the further he walks, the deeper the river gets. And the harder, therefore, it is to move forward in his own strength. And that's a very good reason not to follow the call of God, because I've been doing it quite okay in my own strength, frankly. And if I'm going to go another few thousand cubits, then it's going to become a little bit harder for me to do this life in my own strength. And he gets to the point in verse 5, doesn't he, where he's completely out of his depth, unable to do anything except float carried along by the power of the current. And the power of the current is taking him into the desert places, into the dry, needy wilderness of the world. 
The trajectory of the flow of the river of God, of the kingdom of God, is never into the temple. It's from the temple and into the world. Amen? And there are obvious parallels for us here, aren't there? The further we journey with Jesus, the deeper he takes us. Who can, by a show of hands, who can say the longer I've been following Jesus, actually the deeper he's taken me into things of the kingdom? Most of us, I imagine, can say that. The fact is, if we tot up all the cubits Ezekiel walked, it's around two kilometers. Not as impressive as Wendy, sponsor her everybody, 29 Ks next week, but still pretty impressive. He's had to walk a fair old distance in obedience and he could have turned back at any time, but what was it that kept him going? It was a holy curiosity. There was a sense in his spirit that what I'm about to discover, the abundance of God, I have never found anywhere else. And maybe your early days of faith were marked by easy answers to prayer that you look back on now and think, oh my goodness, like, I long for that again. That was so easy. You know, you sort of mumble the most hopelessly heretical prayer in huge mustard seed levels of faith. And rather than correcting you or publicly shaming you or calling you out, which is what our culture does, God answered that prayer in his grace. And you think, oh, for those days again, you know, the simplicity of splashing around in the ankle-deep shallows, wasn't that fun? But let me tell you something. There are two main reasons that life might feel a little bit harder now. Firstly, you're a little bit older. Hands up if you're a little bit older now than you were when you first came to faith. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. You get it, yeah. You're possibly in a different life stage. Maybe you need to adjust to new responsibilities, uh, new demands, new complexities, new health issues, new questions. And old answers no longer suffice. To quote a pastor from East Harlem in America, um, he said, you find yourself fatigued by a gospel story too narrow for a complex and ever-changing world. You begin to ask questions and then often the church says, don't ask questions, that's dangerous. Jesus is Lord, that's all you need to know. That's fatiguing, isn't it? But the second thing is, God is doing a deeper work in you. He's maturing you. He's, he's forming your soul. And the thing is, struggles have built up over years and decades, and that can calcify into pain, physical or emotional, disappointment. And yet he's calling us to an ability to see beyond external accomplishment or disappointment to the deeper things of the heart. You see, that's the river of God. It's going deeper into the world, the further from the church. But he's also going deeper in our hearts the longer we journey with him. And so my question is, will you keep walking? Maybe some of us have thought, you know what, I've done the, I've done the 2Ks, I've done the 4,000 cubits. I'm done. Others might think, you know what, actually I'm going to head back. I much prefer those easy answers to prayers in the, in the day. I much preferred that black and white certainty. I much preferred not having to think about the intricacies of faith and culture. I much preferred not having to answer the, uh, ask the questions, why God? But let me say this. A surface level encounter with Jesus will not sustain you through the complexities of life. You are not designed to stay in the shallows. If you stay ankle deep the whole of your life, you will, I'm telling you, lose heart. 
And I'm sure we can think of different people who have been unwilling to step out in faith, who we've encouraged and said, God's calling you forward. And they said, you know what? You go. That's great for you. But it's all a bit intense for me. I'm just going to stay here. I've got my house. I've got my job. I've got my comfort. Everything's working all right. You know, listen, I love, I pray every now and then, you know, but I'm happy essentially in ankle deep water. I'm sure we know people like that. And there's no judgment, of course, for that. But the Spirit of God, like he was to Ezekiel, is calling each one of us further and further out of our depth. Why? Because our only real home is God's heart. And God's heart is found beyond the shallows. And so what's the difference between a river and a lake? It's an obvious one, isn't it? Rivers are compelled to move. And they always flow downwards. And this is something I really think for us today. Whatever the world might tell us about upward mobility, quality of life, promotions and career-mindedness, grace flows to the lowest places. The river of God, like any other river, flows in the valleys, not on top of the mountains. One day, we, we prayer walk around Mannenberg. The first year I was in Mannenberg, which is the community we live in outside Cape Town that people have called an apartheid dumping ground, a godforsaken hellhole, a gang breeding ground. Uh, we, we choose to call it home. We love it. Um, it uh, shouldn't exist, of course, because it was founded on the white supremacist lie of apartheid, separateness, where people's homes were forcibly, uh, people were removed forcibly from their homes, their homes were bulldozed, and they were literally thrown out into the sandy wilderness 20 kilometers out of Cape Town. And the collective trauma response to having your territory violated, of course, is that now you will guard your territory with your life. It's a very obvious parallel. You can see that in nations. I'm not going to get political, but if we look at Israel's uh, 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 military, I believe it's a collective response to the trauma of the 1940s. They did it then, they're going to do it again. And we need to arm, defend, and close ourselves off. We see it in Manenberg. They bulldozed our houses and removed us, so now we're going to defend our turf to the very end. And each one of us will have not collective trauma responses so much as individual trauma responses where we have made vows with ourselves that that will never happen to me again. And so we build walls around our heart. But the first year I was in Manenberg, uh, we walked four hours a day, uh, four hours a week praying. So over the course of a year, we walked about 200 hours praying and laying hands on gang leaders' houses and mosques and uh, people and uh, just declaring the kingdom of God and bringing healing where we could and uh, uh, words of prophetic encouragement. And um, so we still do that. Some of us need to continue doing what we first did. There are some things that we grow out of from the shallows into the depths, and there are other things where God's saying, you've, you've, you've left your first love. Just return to that. And so we did that, and we started walking every Tuesday, but before we go out, we say, Lord, what do you want us to show? What do you want to show us? And he showed me a picture of a, a red baseball cap with a, a logo on it. So I said, okay, fine, write that down. And my friend Rudy had the name of a specific road. So we're like, great, that's pretty much all we had. 
So we just went to that specific road and hung around until we found a guy wearing a red baseball cap with Nike emblazoned on it. And so I thought, okay, God's been pretty clear. We need to go and talk to him. And my heart sank, if I'm honest, because I had the word about the red baseball cap. So everyone's like, go on, you do it. And I'm like... And approaching angry-looking gangsters is not my forte, but... Um, and there's no particularly, I mean, there are lots of wrong ways of doing it. There's no real right way of doing it. So I sort of just sidled up and sort of, hi, how, how are you, you know? Um, anyway, long story short, he confided that his name was Wazir. He was a Muslim. He was 17 years old. He was a hard-living gang member. He was on drugs. And I said to him, well, God has shown us that we are to come and pray for you. And he said, I don't believe that. I'm a Muslim. Why would Jesus say that? And we said, well, look. Red baseball cap with a logo, and this is the name of your street, isn't it? He said, yeah. As we said, you see, he gave us your exact details. And he was like, okay. Never seen Allah do that. And I said, well, is there anything we can pray for for you? And he said, um, yeah, I've got a slight issue, which explained the scowl on his face. And I said, oh, sure, you know, thinking slight issue, I don't know, ingrowing toenail or something. Um, and he said... Um, There's a murder that I didn't do, but if I don't stand for it on behalf of the gang, they're going to kill me. What does God think I should do? <laughs> Not your classic alpha course question. <laughs> I said, I, I couldn't tell you what to do, but what I do know is that he has marked you and that he has led us to you, that he has plans for you, and that he can invade this demonic situation. And so we prayed for him. We laid hands on him, and he teared up, and you know, we said to him, this is where we live. We have just, I'm going to get to this in a moment, because you're part of this story. I hope you realize that. I said, we just opened a home for gangsters and addicts to come and live with us and discover this God and meet this God in a brotherhood who calls us each by name and who leads us into his new gang from the hard livings to the holy livings and from uh, a counterfeit brotherhood into a redemptive brotherhood. This is our address. Come see us whenever you want. He hasn't yet, but we're praying that he will. But what I realized that day is that, yes, it's true. Grace flows to the lowest places. And if we are in the river of God, out of our depth, we will find ourselves in the lowest places. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We don't put the, the poor first because they're any better than anyone else. We just put them first because the world puts them last. And God always manifests in the opposite spirit to the prevailing spirits of the world. So let's go back to our passage. Verse 8, have a little look. Sorry, verse 7. When I arrived back at the bank of the river, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. And the man said to me, the water flows towards the eastern region and goes into the Arabah, where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh and swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. And there'll be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and, and makes the salt water fresh. So wherever the river flows, everything will live. And you think, oh, that's a good enough vision. And he goes, no, but there's more. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Eneglium. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like a fi the fish of the great sea. 
Verse 12, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Some of you have met uh, 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 one of my dearest friends. She's part of our core team called Cynthia. And she's uh, from a community similar to Manenberg, and she and Leon are uh, just some of our favorite people and closest friends. And we lead together, uh, five of us, Sarah and me, Leon, Cynthia, and Claire. And we were on our core weekend away, and Cynthia had had sciatica pain down one of her legs. Uh, that She was pregnant, and, and, and the, the more the baby grew, the more the pain grew. And um, one morning... We, uh, we were like, enough's enough. She was unable to take part in the core team weekend, which was basically reflecting on the last year and in theory strategizing for the year ahead, which is never particularly successful because reality in Manenberg's balanced on a knife edge and all our well-laid plans are met with the hilarious laugh of heaven as he says, no, no, I'm doing other things day by day, keep up. But anyway, we do it. It's a good laugh. We have a nice time together. Um, Cynthia was in the bath just, just, just trying to take the weight off in real pain. And Claire just said, enough is enough. Walked around, got Cynthia out of the bath, and she and our friend Z, who's part of our spiritual oversight, declared healing over Cynthia, anointed her with oil, rubbed her leg and prayed. And as they prayed, I kid you not, the one leg began to grow and grew by about three inches. And she said, there's something happening. Are you pulling my leg? They said, no, 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 but we're seeing this. We're seeing this. And her leg grew out, and she got to her feet. And I heard this. I was making scrambled eggs in the kitchen. I didn't have faith for it. I've got to confess. I was annoyed. I was hungry. I was feeling full of unbelief and said, you go pray, but I don't have faith for this. Confession. So you see, sometimes the lives we live are not as good as the stories we tell. <laughs> Ring a bell? <laughs> but thankfully, I live with faithful people. And I saw through the, through the window, it was raining hard that morning. And Cynthia was running and jumping and praising God. And I thought, what on earth is going on? Is she all right? And I opened and she said, I've been healed. I've been healed. There was no pain in her body whatsoever. And then Leon came out and he, for the last year or two, has been, had every now and then been physically carrying her to get to the bathroom. So he was exhausted physically and emotionally from, you know, this, 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 this ongoing pain that his wife was feeling. And he embraced Cynthia. And in the rain, it was like sort of the end of Notting Hill, you know. <laughs> um, no, it wasn't. It was much better than that. But in the rain, he embraced Cynthia and she just folded and just began to weep. Began to weep as years of disappointment and pain and doctor's visits that cost money and exhaustion and unanswered questions were consumed and dissipated by a healing touch from Jesus. There's some of us who need a physical healing touch. The leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Where the river flows, life grows. Amen? swarms of living creatures. Verse 10, fishermen will stand at the shore. How many of us know that there are economic connotations for the kingdom of God flowing into the world? How many of us employ people? Any of us here employ people? A few of us? Well, guess what? 
the river of God flowing into your workplace is that economic employment and prosperity will grow. Fishermen weren't there before. Why? Because there wasn't a river. But suddenly the river flows through the desert. Trees spring up for shade. The fishermen go and economic opportunities are created by the kingdom of God flowing into barren places. And so Ezekiel's vision is clear, is it not? The further away from the temple of God, the greater the encounter will be. Because the people of God will be most out of our comfort zone, out of our depth. We'll be most dependent on the heavenward trajectory that he is carrying us. And the world will be healed, renewed, opportunities will emerge, and swarms of life and living creatures will be. And so he's given us that mandate, hasn't he? The mandate is, behold, I'm making all things new. The new heaven and the new earth is not some rapture and up we go. It's, I see the new heaven coming down to earth. Heaven on earth eventually will be not just the not yet, but it'll be the now, right now. And that's our mandate is to just see, you know, when you're, um, when you're flying in a plane and it's dark and it's night in the, the time zone you come from, but you are flying into a new time zone and someone just opens one of the, the window shutters and it's pitch black in the cabin, but just light streams in because where you're going is bright light. It's already daytime there and just a tiny half an inch floods into the entire cabin and it's so bright you have to kind of guard your eyes well this is the mandate we've been given is that the chink of light is what we carry and it doesn't even need to be the whole window yet that's the new that's the second coming but even that little even that little lifting is enough to change an entire atmosphere and for people to turn and notice and so talking of mandates you may have heard of a thing called the seven mountains mandate has anyone heard that a couple of nods um well in short, it's a teaching that says that the way that Christians are meant to make God known is by climbing ladders of power and influence, right? And so the teaching goes, we must seek to control seven different spheres of society that some prophet decided are the seven spheres of society. Media, government, education, economy, religion, family, and the arts. And once, they say, Christians have dominion in these spheres, it will usher in a whole billion souls harvest. Or something. And that is genuinely what some have claimed God has told them will happen. You might be sitting here thinking, I'm not sure what I think about that. And I think that's good that you're thinking that. Because if we turn to Isaiah 40, we can see what the authoritative revealed word of God tells us will precede the coming of the Lord. Isaiah 40, 3 to 5. A voice of one calling in the desert. Desert, remember? That's the world. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. What will precede the highway of God? Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain shall be made low. So trying to climb a mountain... It's a little bit like polishing the silver on the Titanic. Because before the Lord comes, every valley will be raised up and every mountain will be made low. Let's carry on. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places are plain. And the glory of the Lord, that's his 
holiness in public display will be revealed and all humankind together will see it. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. That is the authoritative prophecy of the mouth of the Lord preceding the second coming. And what that means, people, is that valleys will be raised up before God comes and mountains will be made low. And so here's the irony. It's the epitome of conceit to pursue power and influence in order to have a platform at the top of the mountain to show the humility of Jesus. It's a self-defeating strategy, even just conceptually. Theologically, it's wonky. But if we shouldn't seek to gain power and climb higher and higher to get our person in parliament, our person here and there, and try and have dominion over worldly systems, then what is the answer? How can we hasten the coming of Jesus and the renewing of all things? What should we do? Here's what we should do. According to Isaiah, this isn't Pete, this is Isaiah. What if we gave our lives to the raising up of the valleys? Where do rivers flow, by the way? Along mountaintops or along valleys? Grace flows to the lowest place. And what do rivers spend their entire lives doing? They empty themselves into something greater than them. The posh word for that is kenosis. Jesus emptied himself into the vision of the Father. If anyone could have claimed equality with God, something to be grasped, it was Jesus. And yet he took on the nature of a servant, emptied himself, so that now every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, because eventually he will be exalted. So let me ask you, will you spend your life emptying yourself into the greater vision of God's kingdom? Well, it begs the question, what might the seven valleys be? Laurie and I have got a friend called Bob, Bob Ekblad. Look him up, brilliant. There's an amazing video called Liberating Fire that really grasps in the title the liberation theology that he was living in Guatemalan coffee cooperatives and the fire of Toronto in 94 when he got blasted by the Holy Spirit quite against his will and has now charted a third way of revivalism and activism in the lowest places. It's quite beautiful. And he suggested that the seven valleys could be these. Prisons, slums, old people's homes, Psychiatric wards, drug dens, refugee camps, and the homeless. What if the church wasn't famous and well-known for trying to grab power on earthly terms, but put as much strategy and ambition into infiltrating the seven valleys as it does in trying to climb seven mountains? Can you imagine? Can you imagine how much more prophetic authority we would have 
due to lives laid down rather than trying to grab power. Can you imagine the delight of the Father as his people puts first those the world puts last? Can you imagine the breath of the Spirit manifesting in signs and wonders, breaking forth into the forgotten areas of empire? Can you imagine the harvest of lives of our friends who have only ever mocked the church, but who were previously far from God, kneeling in incredulity and wonder as, quote, the glory of the Lord is revealed and all humankind will see it. And that they witnessed the church finally being what the church has always been called to do. When you're willing to do what you're unqualified to do, that is what qualifies you. The willingness is the qualification. And I want to end with this story. I mentioned that you are part of our story. If you are new here, then I'll explain. Sarah and I came here and visited you in mid-2019. And we were um, uh, on a book tour. Um, sounds rather pretentious and grandiose. But um, ultimately, we were just telling stories of how good God was in different places. And someone said, what do you need? There was a question and answer session. I said, what do you need? What's the next stage? What do you need? I said, we need to buy the block of flats across the road from us. Because for the duration of 2019, we had had young men in gangs and drugs turning up at our door, knocking on our gate, in tears, bags packed, saying, I want to get free, and I've heard that this is where people get free. Can you help me? The Spirit was bringing gangsters and addicts to our door. And we said, we can't, we are full. And we would weep and they would weep. And we, you know, we could do outpatient stuff. We could do, we could do uh, praying for them in the moment, of course. We could invite them to church. We could, all the rest of it, support groups. But we learned long ago that gangs and drugs don't work nine to five or in two hour slots on a Thursday morning. It's all in or nothing. And so I said, we need the block of flats across the road that will double our capacity and enable us to uh, see this brotherhood of redeemed ex-gangsters and addicts grow. And God bless you guys. You gave us the money to buy those flats. And so I can tell you now, three weeks ago, we reopened those flats. They were what you would call a renovator's dream when we bought them. <laughs> and we didn't know, for example, about the massive hidden petroleum tank in the backyard. A lot of surprises, but that's classic God. Not petroleum tanks, surprises. <laughs> and the Sunday before we were due to start the work, we had 50% of the renovation money. We bought the, the flats with the money you kindly gave, and we had 50% of what we needed to renovate on the Sunday. And I got a phone call from a friend I hadn't spoken to in months saying, how are you doing? I said, yeah, good, but we're, we're starting the work tomorrow. And we'd found the most wonderful faith-filled builder who said, look, we'll do it in two phases then. And we'll believe that during the first phase, God will provide all you need. Because how many of us know that as you go, the Spirit of God falls and empowers faith. As they dip their toe in the Jordan, the, the water stopped. As you go, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. Freely you've received, freely give. We need to sometimes just go and do it in faith. The world will say that sounds irresponsible or naive. And God will say, I can breathe on that. 
The Sunday afternoon, this friend phones me and he says, well, how much do you need? And I told him. It was half the whole building cost. It was a lot of money. He said, I'd love to meet the shortfall. When did you say you start work? I said, tomorrow. Please make it quick. <laughs> and so God provided everything we needed. And it looks beautiful. And then uh, two weeks ago, one week after we opened, we had some friends come and we have a monthly revival meeting in Manenberg uh, where we're trying to put, play our part in putting back together a divided city and say, come from every part of Cape Town and come and let's worship and pray together. And four of the five young men living with us ran to the altar, sobbing to give their life to Jesus. And you are part of that story. But it's when we get out of our depth. We didn't have the money. We didn't have the team. We still don't really have the team. We're <laughs> a little bit tired. <laughs> but God will give as we go. And I wanted to share a video, if uh, you could just line it up now. Don't press play just yet. But we became parents to Simtandile, our little daughter who's 18 months old, 10 months ago. Simtandile means beloved. And many of you have been praying for us and for her and that whole process. And I felt that this video I'm going to show you, it's only 20 seconds long or so. It's of Simi learning something new, getting out of her depth, being beckoned forward and discovering something quite beautiful as she walks forward in obedience. Bearing in mind she hadn't walked before this video. Just watch this. Isn't that beautiful? And there we are, crying every different reason why not to do this. And God is beckoning us forward. And you see the delight on her face? So to finish, 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 finish. You can say it a couple of times. I've gone one minute over and I'll go a little bit, two more minutes over. If you need to leave, please feel free. But this is really the, um, the slam dunk. The Ezekiel passage was foreshadowing John 7, where Jesus is speaking at the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, could we get the worship team up? We're going to do that. You know how it goes. We, we, we do the uh, emotionally manipulative music at the end. <laughs> we, we need some tears, eh? So a bit of E minor, maybe. Now that I've introduced it, we needn't, we needn't feel manipulated. No, I'm joking. Jesus, in John 7, fulfilled the river of God vision in Ezekiel 47 at the Feast of the Tabernacles. Three pilgrimage feasts. The first was the Feast of the Passover, commemorating what? The forgiveness of sins. The angel of death would pass over in the Exodus houses where they had put the blood on the lintel. Seven weeks and one day later, Pentecost, meaning 50. The Feast of Pentecost, where we celebrate, looking back in Exodus, the visitation of the Holy Spirit on Mount Sinai that was fulfilled later in Acts 2. The Spirit of God falling and not bringing the people of God the law on tablets of stone, but the fire and the ongoing presence of God in people's hearts. And then the third pilgrimage festival of the Jewish calendar was the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is where Jesus was speaking in John 7. And he gets up on the final day of the feast. 
And he says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within them. And by this he meant the Spirit. And so we need to go from a Pentecost mindset, a visitation mindset, to a tabernacle mindset. That we don't turn up to church hoping for a visitation. But we turn up to church knowing that we're a tabernacle. The feast of the tabernacles was where Israel celebrated the tabernacling of God. Try and use that word today, the verb to tabernacle. His steady, ongoing presence with them all the time, through ups and downs, relapses and doubt. And so my question is, are you feeling the anxiety of performance? That your faith is a kind of shot in the arm, once-off event on a Sunday? This sort of visitation mindset where you say, oh God, please turn up, just get me through the next week. Because I really believe that the, the more, that the abundance is the Spirit leading us into a tabernacle mindset where the Holy Spirit comes with me to church and the Holy Spirit's presence tabernacles me wherever I go. That I'm as spiritual and holy on Monday morning as I am at Sunday, on Sunday at church. And that it's a lifelong flow of God's goodness where goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life, wherever I go. Because I'm a tabernacle for the living God and His Holy Spirit. Amen.